You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy Program, the Sunday morning program devoted to all things medical and psychiatric. I'm Dr. Anna Bollocks and I'm joined today by Dr. SK and Dr. Sigmund McZiff and the lovely Kent. And today we are celebrating. Yes, there was a momentous vote in Europe last night. And before you switch off to avoid spoilers, we're not talking about Eurovision. <laughs> Even though we've come bedecked in our sequence today just for that occasion, there was another vote, probably, believe it or not, of greater import than how Luxembourg voted for Sweden, and we're going to talk about it right when we come back and catch up. Good morning, SK. Welcome back. How are oh, you? Morning, Anabolics. I'm fighting fit for a Sunday morning, despite the detours on the way to Triple R this morning. Yes, they're bedeviling, aren't they, out yeah, there terrible. this morning? And and you, McZiff? Well, uh, yes, I'm also very well, uh, and uh, I was struck by those. De- I don't think I've ever seen so much road work in my life. I mean, and uh, um, five thousand trucks and eighteen thousand ro- road workers. I mean, it's it's remarkable. What a pretty day I'm putting. A, you know, an underground railway down there. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, it'd just be terrific. <laughs> well, look, I thought we'd start up catch up this morning by just talking about the vote in Ireland yesterday. For those people who are just waking up and haven't heard the result, uh, Ireland has voted by a huge majority to legalise same-sex marriage, and we are now going to have a, qu- a little quiet woohoo in the in the uh, studio. Ready? Three, one, two, three. Woo-hoo! They have become the first country in the world to do so by popular vote, um, and it's been hailed in Ireland as a uh, social revolution. Now, some 62% of the Irish Republic's electorate voted in favour of gay marriage. It's an extraordinary result uh, in a republic that was once dominated by the Catholic Church, given that the Catholic Church uh, has specifically um, uh, want, uh, been behind the vote. No movement in this particular um, vote. And out of a massive 3 million people in Ireland, a huge 1.2 million people backed gay marriage. So it's an extraordinary thing to happen. The first one's ever happened through the ballot box um, rather than a, from uh, the government down directive. Your thoughts, guys? How did you find... Did you hear about this this morning? Well, I, not only I heard, I heard about it. I, I saw the, what I thought was one of the most inspirational speeches by the Irish Prime Minister. I think it's wonderful, and uh, I think... Uh, I mean, it sort of makes me think in in 20 years' time, we'll look back and we'll say, what was all the fuss about? I mean, surely this is just so normal and uh, um, it it will be in many countries around the world, I'm sure, by then, and uh, I anticipate it will be here in Australia. There's already some uh, agitation from some politicians, and uh, I know that uh, the independent senator, David Lionhelm, has uh, put his own... Um, bill before Parliament and he's hoping that that's going to get up because it won't be exposed to the same sort of opposition from the coalition as as there will be towards uh, a Greens or Labour um, bill. So Let's hope that uh, this just gathers steam. Yeah, Lionhelm's coming at it from a different perspective, of course. I was listening to him on the way in this morning, and uh, you know, it's not necessarily the equality angle that Lionhelm's bill is pushing, but the fact that you know, marriage is a, a matter of between two individuals, so government should just get the hell out of it. And he was drawing the analogy that uh, you know, 50 years ago in the States, for example, it was illegal for a, an interracial couple to marry, and you know, that's not really the business of government. Uh, uh, his argument is from a civil liberties perspective and uh, that government should have as, as little intrusion into the lives of people uh, as possible. But I was interested to hear again on the radio this morning there was a Liberal being, a senator being interviewed and on the back of the Irish results he seemed to be uh, contemplating that you know maybe a referendum in Australia might be the way to go if this private member's bill doesn't give up. Well, in our constitution I think we have to have a majority of people voting in a majority of states, don't we, I think, to something to get passed. And we've got a bad history of getting yeses across the line in our country but on a couple of key things that have been very important we have and interestingly this seems to be emerging from the ground up we're not being led on this issue in our country are we we're not there we're not we haven't got um leaders on either side of politics who are you know really driving home this message in fact they're avoiding the um the issue largely as as a political wedge problem in the pantheon of great political leaders uh i think our current crop are not going to feature highly 
but I, but I think you know the government's uncertain about the broader feeling in the community on this, and maybe that is uh, one of the rationales behind holding a referendum. They don't know where the population sits on this, and at least if there's a uh, a swing of momentum behind uh, marriage equality in a referendum, they'll be able to better formulate uh, a policy. And I guess the parties are riven by the uh, inclusion of members who have strong religious beliefs on this uh, matter as well. You know, many of them being Catholics, uh, for example. Well, th that the Catholic vote didn't seem to hold sway as much as was predicted in Ireland, which is interesting. Well, I think that's because, from what I can gather, that the, the Catholic Church has taken a big hit through this uh, institutional sexual abuse scandal that's just mm -hmm. rocked the church worldwide, and as, as a result, it carries much less authority than it did. Hearing actually some of the the no vote radio ads that were put out in Ireland prior to the vote, they weren't pushing the issue of. Uh, they weren't, they weren't promoting the no vote on the basis of, of same sex as such, but they were promoting the no vote on the basis of it opening the door to then uh, society being subject to uh, you know children who are raised by not a mother and a father, and they're saying that this is bad for children rather than bad for broader society or for gay couples. So it's, it seems they changed their line of attack on their opposition as well to try and you know get behind a, another way of thinking that the population might have about it, but uh, they failed. It's interesting that you raise that because one um, uh, area where Australia led the world in progressive social policy was of course of female uh, uh, suffrage. We were one of the first countries in the world where women got the vote and I've had times when I've looked back at um, the early politics of that time and if you, it's a very interesting thing to do to have a look back at the, at the arguments that were put forth in the parliament and outside the parliament in the paper at the time when the votes were happening about female suffrage almost identical uh, comments and fears being raised that you just mentioned then. The family unit would suffer, children would not have a mother, uh, it would be the end of... It, they, they, I'm not kidding, they go back and have a look at it, that, that the family unit would break down and that women couldn't do this without causing problems for their children, uh, it would encourage drinking, smoking, all <laughs> sorts... You know, it, it, this sort of hysteria that goes with progressive social change, it was all there around uh, the female suffrage vote in Australia but somehow we managed to be ahead of the game there and we are so far behind it now There's a, we've got 20 other countries you know in around the world now <laughs> and you know Argentina Iceland Portugal Denmark England France New Zealand I mean there's just all the countries that we would usually feel we have a kinship with are so far ahead of us on this issue now you're very excited by the results of this vote this morning anabolics mm -hmm. you know we can t we can tell that <laughs> but given that there are 20 countries in, in which uh, same-sex marriage is legal what what do you think the difference is about this being uh, coming about as a result of a referendum result as opposed to legislation. I mean, clearly those other countries which have uh, legalised same-sex uh, marriage, uh, you know, they've done that on the basis of popular support for the, for the concept. It's, it's, it wouldn't be brought in as legislation if it was electorally massively unpopular. What's mm. the significance of a referendum, do you think? Or is it well, just the Catholic angle in Ireland? I, I think there is a part of the, as I understand it, the Irish constitution says that these sort of things have to be changed by popular votes. So I think there is that aspect that may be different to some other countries. But I, I suppose symbolically it's uh, hugely important. If you are gay in Ireland and you are told that, you know, from now that the politicians have voted to say that you now can marry, that's one thing. But if you know that the great majority of your friends, family and the people you work for, the people you sit with every day, the people who are around you, if you know that from their hearts they've voted uh, for equality for you, then that's a hugely profound statement of inclusion I think more more so I can you can draw more comfort from that I believe and more uh, solidarity with your fellow citizens perhaps if it comes in that from that so maybe that's one way we can do it yeah and I think that governments change uh, f uh, fairly rapidly but <clears throat> but people don't change so much so a referendum is uh, it's, it is a very powerful statement I thought we'd just... Um, I, you mentioned this, the uh, comments from the Prime Minister. It's, it's not call, he's not called Prime Minister. There's an unusual word for it, and I, and I can't pronounce it. It's an Irish word. But he's, uh, Ender Kenny is his name, and he's a suppose from the uh, centre-right party yeah. in coalition with the Labor Party. But both, interestingly, parties from across the political... Um, 
sphere in Ireland all supported the Yes movement. And um, uh, he, he's given a, a beautiful speech this morning. I thought I might just actually read it. And it's only about a one and a half minutes long, but I thought I might read it and then, and then go to a lovely track. Oh, sorry, SK, you want to say something before we go? Yeah, before you do read it, I yeah. mean, referendums rarely succeed without the support of leading politicians. You know, a bipartisan approach is ideal. But the, the Irish Prime Minister or whatever post he holds apparently had a, a big change of heart on this issue over the previous two years. You know, it's been on the radar in Ireland for some time, but uh, famously a couple of years ago he was in such a hurry to avoid a question from a member of a media scrum on this uh, question that he tripped over a flower pot in his haste to escape and that footage is on uh, YouTube but I think subsequently he's had members of his own family uh, you know who who uh, want to legalize gay relationships approach him and he's had a massive change of heart and he's come out as one of the biggest proponents of the yes vote and he also a few years ago was one of the people who was the loudest voice against the um, abuse issues in the church and really took on the Vatican very strongly about this and um, made some very strong, unheard of strong comments from a, uh, an Irish Prime Minister. So it's interesting to watch the transition of people on this, on this issue. So we're going to come back in a little while and talk about some interesting things about some films and some uh, issues around binge eating. But I, before we go, I just want to read this lovely speech from Ender Kenny. Here's what he had to say. He had to say, In the privacy of the ballot box, the people made a public statement. With today... Voting With today's vote, we have disclosed who we are, a generous, compassionate, bold and joyful people. We've said yes to inclusion, yes to generosity, yes to love and yes to equal marriage. I know that for tens of thousands of couples and their families, the last 24 hours were almost like a vigil at the end of a long journey. Would their fragile and deeply personal hopes be realised? Would a majority of people in this our republic stand with them and stand up for them so that they can live in our shelter and not in our shadow? That having come out to us, we could now come out for them and do it with a single word, a solitary syllable, yes, marked with an X. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, we've got uh, Dr. S.K. in the studio this morning, and he's been keeping a, a bit of an eye on the Cannes Film Festival for fascinating things. What's yeah, been happening? Yeah. Well, I'm always on the lookout for new films to talk about on this show, and I was... Uh uh, partly amused, partly disappointed to hear that a, a film had been booed and derided and jeered by the audience at uh, Cannes during the week. Apparently that's not an unusual occurrence at Cannes, but for a, a fairly high-profile film uh, starring Matthew McConaughey, who's sort of uh, flavour of the month at the moment due to some recent television successes, uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Naomi Watts made a movie that was premiered at Cannes called uh, Sea of Trees. And... Uh, <laughs> It got a very uh, poor reception by the critics. One, one critic famously quipped that it's aptly titled Sea of Trees because it makes you feel like you're drowning and it's full of sap. It was derided as a film that went nowhere, that was empty of dialogue, plot, empathy for characters and so forth. So I, I did a bit of research on Sea of Trees and sort of had one of those light bulb uh, moments. You know, Jung referred to this concept called synchronicity where two apparently unrelated events... Uh, coincide to create a, a new opportunity <laughs> and uh, when I w began when I went online to have a look at Sea of Trees I found that it was a story that was set in a Japanese forest that's renowned for suicide and uh, I did at the start of this month uh, attend as a panelist at a medically themed film festival called Medfest at Monash Medical Centre which showed us a series of short films around the topics of uh, mental illness and one of these films was in fact a documentary about this <coughs> excuse me, Japanese suicide forest. Now, it's going to be a fairly heavy discussion by nature of the topic, uh, so if, if there are people listening who are distressed by uh, the idea of a discussion around suicide, please turn off for 10, 15 minutes or so. We don't mind. And if uh, there is any distress raised by the topic that ensues, you know, please consider uh, you know, Lifeline on 13, 11, 14 if the discussion distresses you. I don't really want to go into the plot of Sea of Trees to any great extent, but apparently it's uh, about McConaughey as a middle-aged American who is uh, visiting this forest at the base of Mount Fuji and he encounters a, a Japanese man who has gone there intent on suicide and that the film explores the relationship that they develop and the interaction that they have uh, in the forest. 
This uh, forest itself uh, lies at the base of Mount Fuji. I think it's on the northern face of Mount Fuji, and it's about 35 square kilometres in area. So it's quite a large uh, piece of land that lies on the base of... Uh, a base of lava that arose uh, as a result of an eruption of Mount Fuji back in the 800s ADs. So it's a very rich soil and it's quite a a lush and beautiful forest in its own right. But it's uh, developed uh, a reputation over many centuries as a place where one shouldn't go. There's sort of local rumours about it being inhabited by demons and uh, apparently in Japanese tradition poor families who couldn't support ailing old ones would take them into this forest and and abandon them to die so it's a forest that's got a bit of a macabre history in folklore but since the the 1960s where it was the subject of a famous japanese novel called kuro jukai uh, the, the plot of this novel has a young lover uh, who's been unhappy in love suiciding within uh, this forest and since the publication of this novel in particular the annual suicide rate in this particular forest has varied between 60 and 100 deaths per year Uh, and it's continuing to rise I think in in recent years that the total peaked at 108 deaths on an annual basis within this forest and this this forest in Japan has become the number two Uh, suicide landmark in the world behind the Golden Gate Bridge uh, which is is number one apparently the forest holds so many bodies and the exact number is is by no means certain that the local Yakuza, the organised crime outfit they have been known to pay homeless people to enter the forest and basically rob corpses and return the profits to them Uh, it's the subject of an annual sweep clearance sweep by authorities and volunteers to go through the forest and clear out uh, dead bodies that have accrued over the previous 12 months. Ah. It's really horrendous. And there was a documentary uh, screened at this Medfest project that I went to which uh, is available online. If you you Google Japanese suicide forest you'll you'll find video online. It's it's only a a 20 to 25 minute uh, doco but it follows uh, a couple of days in the life of a local geologist who's really been employed to to study the uh, natural history consequences of the eruptions of Mount Fuji because it's a lava-rich forest and so forth. But as part of his work, which involves him going into the forest on a daily basis, he himself uh, has discovered over 100 bodies within the forest over a 20-year period. So he's become... uh, a, a bit proactive in this regard he now takes it upon himself to try and enter the forest and find people who have gone in there with the idea of contemplating suicide and how he does this you know he's aware that not everybody who enters the forest goes in there and actually completes suicide a number of people are ambivalent about it and they take some time to think and he's determined that uh, those who are ambivalent tend to take rolls of tape and string them between trees so that they can potentially find their way back from where they've ventured into the forest. And his method is that he'll go into car parks around the forest and he'll look for cars that seem to have been abandoned or that have been there for several days or weeks because he's a frequent visitor to the area. When he finds such a car, he'll uh, enter the forest off the tourist trail and it's a very well touristed forest it's a beautiful place there's plenty of people who go there to hike and appreciate nature as well but uh, the 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 main trail departs a few hundred metres into the forest at which point there's a sign that's been elected by, erected by local authorities you know warning people about suicide and reminding them of the love of their families and so on but beyond this point of divergence in the trail there's a series of tape trails where people have entered the forest and wound their way in and he follows the tape and he'll usually find at the end of it something uh, either a body uh, usually uh, a body that's been hanging that's the the commonest method of of suicide that's chosen uh, occasionally an overdose but uh, much more often he'll come across the remains of a camp where people have obviously stayed for a few days possibly reconsidered and gone out 
and occasionally he'll find somebody who's actually still living and camping and is in the stage of contemplation of suicide and there's a couple of very moving points in the doco where the first is where he finds uh, a skeletized corpse and the remains of a of a rope where somebody's hung themselves and there's a skeleton dressed in clothes that he just stumbles across during the course of this documentary and a second sort of more poignant moment where in the middle of a trail he finds a tent uh, where there's, there's somebody still within the tent and he sits down and talks to this fellow and tries to counsel him out of what he might be contemplating. And at the end of the documentary there's a, there's a, a couple of lines on screen to say that an ambulance went in and with police rescued this guy who'd been camping out for about 20 days and living just on fluids. So obviously in, in the advanced stages of uh, suicide contemplation. So this uh, geologist's performing very much a, a public service in doing this, but it, it really highlights the great tragedy of suicide within this landmark in Japan. Uh, apparently there's no great history of suicide historically in Japan as being a means of escaping life's troubles. Uh, suicide has mainly come to the awareness of the broader Japanese population through it being a way out for disgraced samurai who would commit Harry Carry. But uh, over the centuries there's been no great tradition of suicide in Japan, but it's certainly a modern phenomena which the uh, narrator of the documentary links perhaps to uh, the westernisation of Japanese society and particularly uh, the lack of social connectedness that people might suffer, young people in particular, as a result of the, uh, the internet. Uh, so it's a, a terribly harrowing uh, documentary to watch and uh, seeing an edited version of it in the short film festival you know, raised a number of issues. I mean, chief amongst them for me was, you know, firstly, what are we doing as a society where people are killing themselves in, in such vast numbers? But, uh, but also this uh, issue of there being suicide landmarks, uh, places where people go once they have achieved a certain notoriety for suicide, to then complete or contemplate the act themselves. And perhaps the best-known example locally is the Westgate Bridge. And the figures of deaths from suicide on the Westgate, they've probably been overstated in the public con consciousness. Uh, but in the period 1991 to 1998, there are a total of 62 deaths from people jumping off the Westgate, which is a lot. You know, it's uh, about 10 per year during that period, but it's not as huge by an order of magnitude as uh, the Japanese suicide forest. And despite there having been coronial recommendations to erect suicide barriers on the Westgate since about 2002, this was only finally done following that horrendous incident where uh, a fellow threw his young daughter off the, uh, the Westgate Bridge and was subsequently jailed. Interestingly, since the, the suicide barriers have been erected on the Westgate, that's resulted in there being an 85% decrease in deaths from that bridge without there having been a corresponding increase in suicides by jumping from the nearby Balti Bridge or from other high structures. So it, it does raise the question of whether if you can reduce access to means of suicide, then that in itself might reduce the overall suicide rate, which seems counterintuitive. I'd be interested in hearing your guys' perspectives on this, because intuitively to me, if you were fixated upon killing yourself and had decided to go through with it, then if one means were denied to you, you'd simply move on and find another means. But that doesn't appear to have been the case with the Westgate. Do either of you have any thoughts on that? I think there is some historical evidence to support that. In, in, there were two big occasions that I can remember when the suicide rates in the Western countries went down, particularly in Britain and Australia went down, and that was when household gas was um, made uh, non-lethal, and the other time was when barbiturates were um, taken away from... <coughs> barbiturates were taken off the, the easy-to-get market, and other, other drugs came in instead of barbiturates. So the deaths, uh, suicide rates, both those occasions went down slightly in both countries. It's an interesting thing clinically when you talk with patients who have severe depression and who we assess 
in the clinical context, we assess the lethality of, uh, of suicidal ideation. So people have suicidal thoughts, and then they may well make plans, and then they may well make attempts. And there does seem to be a consistency of approach that people adopt. Those people who, who are feeling suicidal and who make a plan, they tend to have an idea which is really well formed in their mind, and removal of that option seems to... Uh, it, it provides a sense of interference to uh, a cognitive loop, I think, which has formed in, uh, in the mind of the suicidal individual. And I think that uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that if you take away one form, that if, you, you know, if all of a sudden um, uh, someone who, is, who was going to gas themselves uh, no longer has that as an option, you know, taking an overdose or slitting their wrist or hanging may not be something which would be routinely considered to them because you have to try. I mean, it's very difficult to put oneself in the mind of the severely depressed individual who has developed some, who has developed suicidal ideation. Um, but uh, I, I, I see it, that, that whole notion does not surprise me. I certainly take the point that certain means of suicide are considered by individuals as being appropriate and others are rejected for various reasons and that goes back to the point you made anabolics about uh, gassings and the suicide rate in the UK now the commonest means of successful suicide in Britain up until the 1960s was to stick your head in a gas oven and the domestic gas supply was highly toxic coal gas at that time uh, and it was considered a pleasant way to go. Uh, when the gas supply changed over to natural gas, it became suddenly much harder to kill yourself by putting your head in an oven, and the people who would otherwise have done that didn't go on and select alternative means because they considered those means unacceptable. They didn't want something that would seen as a violent or a messy end, so I can accept that. I struggle when it comes to somebody who's so fixated on a violent means and a certain means like jumping from a height where you're extremely unlikely to survive although in the case of the Westgate jumps you know several people did survive I think seven people survived in that uh, 91 to 98 period but I, I would have thought that if you were so fixated on a violent means of death that you might have gone on and, and looked for other means but uh, it doesn't seem to have happened and I guess it raises for me issues around, you know, where is the suicide prevention dollar most effectively spent? You know, despite coronial recommendations to fence the Westgate, you know, since 2002, it was only done following what was essentially a murder on the same site. And there's a, there's a big argument about suicide prevention and whether the, the people who should be targeted in that are the, the high-risk individuals, the people who have identified as being high-risk by virtue of a previous attempt or being seriously psychiatrically ill, or whether that same money is better spent on community interventions. For example, it cost uh, $20 million to erect suicide barriers on the Westgate Bridge. And are you preventing more suicides by doing that, or are you, would you prevent more suicides by funding a broader-based community intervention like supporting Beyond Blue to a greater extent or greater funding to, to Lifeline? And I think that's a, a policy decision that... Uh, policymakers struggle with and there's no clear answer. Clearly something had to be done about the Westgate, so something was done at great cost, but whether that money could have been better spent and prevented more deaths if it was uh, placed on a more broadly based community intervention, I don't know. Takes us back to that conversation we had last week about Peter Singer's talking about where do you put your charity dollar as well, you know, in prevention services or in emergency services, very similar. So it's questions were being raised. Is, is prevention, prevention dollars uh, more worthwhile than emergency dollars? It's the same sort of question, isn't Society it? Society struggles with these things. So, look, I, I feel compelled to, to watch Sea of Trees when it comes out, just for, for academic interest, but... You know, it's a fascinating documentary. Uh, just if you Google Japanese suicide forest, you will find a link to the documentary quite easily. And again, if, uh, if any listeners have been distressed by the contents of this discussion, uh, Beyond Blue or Lifeline on, on 13, 11, 14, Dr. Anna Box. And uh, I think it also highlights the fact that taking one's own life is a decision. It's a human decision, and the complexities around it are enormous. And uh, there are thousands of things every day that make us think life is worth going on with 
till tomorrow and lots that come up that make us think it's not but uh, hopefully um, most days most of us wake up and think you know what I'm just curious about tomorrow and things aren't really that bad if you look through that prism so I'm hoping that all our listeners will think that there's enough good reason to get up and look at the good things in life uh, to go on with us and be here for this next week because there's always something good to live for. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Dr McZiff, you're looking wonderful and you're looking frisky and you've got to tell us about some things about eating disorders you've brought in. No, no, well, well just binge eating, basically. Ah, binge, binge eating, okay. eating disorder. Um, the, I think all of us um, have, at some stage, had a tendency to overeat. And, uh, what are you trying to say? <laughs> well, look at, I mean, in, in your svelte state, um, it's certainly not something that uh, applies to you. But uh, and, and it's not necessarily correlated with uh, an individual's weight. But, but a binge, uh, I'm not talking here about bulimia, I'm talking here about, uh, about binges. I mean, people do that all the time. And, you know, b- b- I mean, a typical binge um, uh, involves a consumption of a very large amount of food um, uh, in, in a short period of time, uh, usually in secrecy, and uh, and with an aftermath of considerable emotional discomfort. And uh, it, it's actually a condition that, I mean, you hear about people uh, in the therapeutic consultation. Uh, I've certainly over the years, uh, from people who I would not in any way have considered to have an underlying eating disorder, I've heard countless accounts of people eating themselves, gorging to deal with uncomfortable emotional states. C- can you quantify it for us, McZiff, you know, as, as somebody who's been known myself to sit down and polish off the odd packet at Tim Tams, would that be considered a binge, or is that the, the quantity of food that we're talking about? Well, um, it's not... I mean, I, I don't know that there is necessarily a set amount, you know, a bucket of KFC, a packet of Tim Tams, uh, um, a large family-sized um, th- whatever. I mean, what we do know is that it is the, 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 it, within a binge, the eating is not characterized by hungry eating. So people aren't eating necessarily because they're hungry, and there's a very significant emotional component to it. So there's an underlying feeling of distress beforehand, which is being dealt with by the binge, and then there are very characteristic feelings in the aftermath. So if you've had your your packet of Tim Tams, Mm. and after that you are overwhelmed with feelings of guilt self-loathing, disgust, embarrassment, and you then set out, I'm never going to do this again, and then you do it again the following weekend after your football team's lost or after you've had some sort of domestic upheaval, then that is a binge. I feel much more reassured now. There's no guilt. (laughs) There's no guilt at all. So, So, you know, I mean, hearing about this sort of compulsive eating that, that uh, people talk about, um, and it, it's always, almost always involved with uh, a process of trying to deal with feelings which are uncomfortable or intolerable, and uh, the process leading up to the binge uh, is driven by an irresistible urge, which is only relieved by, and, and then only transiently, by the binge itself. Uh, the binge uh, is never of itself successful, and after the binge, people are left with feelings of embarrassment or disgust or self-loathing and very, very frequently uh, um, guilt. And, you know, there's no one particular subtype of person uh, but, and there's no one, necessarily one type of feeling which underlies the binge, but very commonly people are struggling with uh, self-esteem issues, with anxiety, with depression, with loneliness. And uh, people who recurrently tend to binge, often make pacts with themselves about dieting and about uh, avoiding binges or, or in fact, fasting. And uh, these are invariably short-term and unsuccessful, leaving the individual with an even greater sense of failure, the very same sort of feeling, which is then predisposing them to going out and binging again. Do you think that sort of build-up suggests that it's better to have one Tim Tam every day and just enjoy it than put them off completely fasting and then have a volcanic 
binge? Is it better just have a little bit of what you like right, and, and measure it? Is that, is that the answer to this? Yeah, I think that, that uh, th- that's much more sensible. It's just a question of whether you're, in fact, able to... Can stop to at one. SK, why can't you stop at one? Come on, tell us. Because I like it. It's pleasure-seeking. And, and to, to me, that's, uh, that's probably an important part. I mean, from what you've described, Mix, if I'm interpreting binging as being a coping mechanism of some sort, so somebody experiences a negative mood state, they're wanting to feel better so they will indulge in something that is pleasurable because I gather people don't binge on celery. And no, 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 no. There's no, in, in the history of recorded man, no one has ever <laughs> complained about binging on celery. And, uh, and it, it is, it's rapidly um, digestible foods, you know, high carbohydrate content, very flavoursome foods, and you get it in and you get it in quickly. And that's what um, is characteristic of a binge. So there's a vicious cycle which becomes entrenched. There's transient comfort, relief from emotional pain, and that's then followed by further feelings of self-loathing and misery. And uh, um, you know, it, it's interesting that, that the binge itself uh, often occurs over a very short period of time and with, uh, with great secrecy. And, uh, and p- people who binge often appear in social contexts to be eating perfectly normally. It's not when they get home and they're alone that the binge occurs. You did say, though, that this was not bulimia, and, and so far I've not heard much to differentiate. The one it. thing, the, the critical thing which differentiate, differentiates a binge from bulimia is the purging afterwards. Ah. So once somebody purges, that is then bulimic. I'm, I'm an amnestic bulimic. <laughs> I, I binge and then forget to vomit. <laughs> well, you're a binger then. Right. Okay. You're a binger, yeah. And, uh, um, and, you know, there's so much stuff in the media these days about eating and about bulimia and about uh, anorexic models and uh, food is everywhere in the society in which we live that the sufferers of binge eating disorders tend to be exquisitely sensitive to all of the, the material that comes up on the media and that can reinforce feelings of failure and guilt. So how would you know you've got a binge eating disorder? And uh, here uh, in response to, to SK's concerns about his, uh, his Tim Tam f- uh, fetish, you might be a Tim Tam fetishist. Um, so, so these are some of the characteristics. People are, are embarrassed by their eating habits and they hide the binge eating. They'll, they'll, they'll conduct it in secret. They feel unable to control it they eat large amounts of comfort food very quickly, and they'll often stockpile the very foods which they know are going to be consumed in a binge. They eat normally in front of others, as I've said, but binge when alone. And they tend to eat uh, throughout the day constantly rather than having delineated or specific meal times. So the three meals a day is not characteristic of a binge eater. So they tend as a group to be overweight for that reason, because well, they're not purging or indulging in compensatory behaviours, they're just experiencing guilt afterwards? Interestingly, when, when you look at the literature, it, it says that binge eating disorder is uh, not necessarily correlated with, uh, with weight. You can have people who are uh, of normal weight, underweight, overweight. So there must be some compensatory behaviour, because if you're eating vast amounts of calorie-rich food frequently and in secret... Uh, despite being normal on the surface in social eating situations, you've got to get rid of that extra caloric load somehow. You would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, so, I mean, and the other things are, uh, and and these are important aspects, so the stress that is present is only is transiently relieved by the eating but during the eating during the binging people frequently feel emotionally numb almost as though they're on automatic pilot and uh, and then afterwards there are these feelings of guilt and shame um and now there are there are many consequences of binge binge eating uh, there are the physical consequences first of all i mean that sort of pattern of eating is not conducive to good health and a lot of the metabolic disorders that we are uh, aware of um, are uh, d- do tend to be more common in people who have this type of disorder so certainly type 2 diabetes raised cholesterol um, uh, hi- hypertension and other 
conditions. And, uh, and then there are the associated psychological and emotional consequences. So people with binge eating disorder may have underlying feelings of depression and anxiety, but the binging itself uh, reinforces those feelings. And there is a not insignificant risk of suicide because of this sense of, this recurrent sense of failure and uh, of hopelessness, of misery, of, of being out of control over something which is so central to life. Can it occur as a primary disorder, McZiffman? You've mentioned that's often associated with anxiety and depression, and presumably if those underlying disorders are treated, then the binge eating might take care of itself. But do you see people who have a binge eating disorder in the absence of other treatable uh, mood conditions? I've certainly very frequently in the clinical context heard people come in and they will talk about a binge as part of their it, it's almost as though it's part of their underlying character so it's unresolved issues which would not necessarily correlate with a diagnosis of anxiety or depression so if you if you did a diagnostic assessment on someone in therapy and you know, they would not come up with a, a clinical depression, a major depression, they would not be diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder. But as we know, there are spectrums of severity of, uh, of these conditions in different times when people might be feeling more stressed or more anxious, somewhat down, but would not would not warrant a clinical diagnosis. And I think that the, the binge eating symptom can very much occur in that context. It's a very complex issue, isn't it? Because a lot of people might be sitting here thinking, I actually do that sometimes to self-soothe. That's something I do when I am feeling depressed. When I am feeling a bit low, sometimes I will go and eat you know, four or five Tim Tams or have two glasses of whiskey, which I don't usually like to drink. Or Sometimes it can be uh, something that ameliorates how they feel and they would argue Absolutely. that they would argue this is what I do instead of getting my depression whereas I do something that treats myself soothes myself pampers myself it's a very complex area isn't it it is a complex area and I think the issue where it becomes a disorder is where there is an impact on psychosocial functioning and where one feels as though they don't have control and it's so repetitive that it almost it, it develops a life of its own so that is that, that's I mean, I, we, we could all, if, if we're being honest, we could all think, now, uh, I'm not just talking about sitting in and devouring a pack of Tim Tams whilst watching a movie, but there, there are times when the reasons we've done these things is because of emotional discomfort, is to make ourselves feel somewhat better. And I think as, as, as humans, we're prone to comfort-seeking behavior. And food, is such, food and eating are such, social, such central parts of our social activity, that, and we, we get pleasure from food. And so overeating at times is not abnormal. It's when it is associated with these feelings of great emotional distress and it becomes patterned behavior, that's when we've got a problem. So I thought perhaps the best way to finish is, is to look at what, sh what should you do if, you know, if this resonates with you and if you think that you may well have this as a, as a symptom profile. <clears throat> First and foremost, I think there's a need to recognize the fact that this is a condition that, uh, that uh, exists and that, you, that one may have. Look at, the, look at the utilization of healthy stress management strategies. And we know that exercise, that regular eating, that relaxation, that meditation, uh, that developing alternative strategies to deal with stress rather than binge eating, regular, specific, designated meal times which start and end and which you stick to. And, uh, and very important also not to skip meals because skipping meals reinforces feelings of hunger and need. And, and then you feel, well, maybe I can, uh, you know, I warrant now I can I can have uh, remove temptations at home that's huge so if you haven't got the Tim Tams in the cupboard again you're not likely I mean and this this ties in very much with the suicide thing so you, know, you put a bridge you put um, barriers on the Westgate bridge you make people less likely to jump you remove the the the, the tempting food from home I mean I, I, I know myself that, that if there's nothing there if Lady McZiff hasn't uh, stocked the, the larder you know I can walk around 
sound like, uh, uh, you know, I, can, I keep going back and looking, but there's nothing there. And if there's nothing there, you're not going to do it. Um, so keep junk food out of the pantry. Uh, don't diet or restrict. That's another thing because we know. And, and um, we've had Rick Korsman in here a number of times talking about uh, um, if not dieting, what. Um, regular exercise in itself is particularly helpful. Um, uh, alternative strategies to deal with boredom because boredom is a uh, is a major contributor. Um, sleep hygiene. People who are tired often are more prone uh, to to binge eat. Uh, and seeing differences between hungry and non-hungry eating. A number one, another one of uh, Rick Cosman's uh, um, recommendations. Food diaries. Keeping a food diary. I mean, if you're really honest with yourself. Um, uh, a food diary can be a wonderful thing. And finally, seeking treatment, and whether that's cognitive behavior therapy or interpersonal therapy, DBT, whatever, that, that's the way to go. Fantastic advice, McZiff. Thank you very much. We're going to just have a quick cut now and come back and talk about another area of um, possible binging and what to do about it in the, in the argument about prohibition of drugs and alcohol. Three, triple, ah. And welcome back to Radiotherapy. I was after a great segment on binge eating. We're going to move along to talk about um, some aspects of the drug uh, uh, policy matter that we, we raised a bit last week. And there was a very interesting article in yesterday's paper which was pertinent on this subject by Michael Coulter, headed, The Long-Running War on Drugs Has Failed, We Need to Legalise Now. And in this article he puts forward the arguments as he sees them for um, re removing the prohibition of drugs. And I thought I'd raise this with you guys and see what you thought about it. Now the thrust of the article is that we need to begin an urgent public conversation around ending drug prohibitions of all kinds because it has been, quote, a huge expensive mistake, unquote. Now, this is a subject that's come up many times on this show and it um, seems that there are more and more voices at the moment that are sort of speaking out about ending prohibition. They're coming from lots of unusual quarters, places that we don't usually hear uh, this sort of thing from. For example, uh, Michael Colton notes that uh, Ken Lay, the former Victorian Police Chief Commissioner, who's recently been appointed as head of Australia's new ICE task force has said that quote for the last 10 years we've been trying to arrest our way out of this and we haven't succeeded so we need to look for other solutions so it's a, a very um, significant comment from him I think also the US based group LEAP LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which has 5,000 former policemen on its, in its, uh, amongst its members, argues in its mission statement that, quote, history has shown that drug prohibition reduces neither use nor abuse. So there's a lot of kind of voices coming out now asking whether it's time for the, to have this, you know, very significant conversation about ending prohibition. Alex Wodak, who's the president of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation and a past director of St Vincent's Hospital Drug and Alcohol Service in Sydney, he has recently come out and um, expressed his dismay that the issue of our drug policy has become so politicised recently and that we're not having a sensible clinical, medical, um, social conversation about it. In December last year, he published a very strongly worded article in The Guardian saying that we've, quote, lost the war on drugs. It's already lost. We can forget about fighting it. It's already lost. He wrote, like almost every country around the world and for more than a century, Australia has relied on law enforcement to control drugs. In that time, the drug market has continued to grow and has become, if anything, more dangerous. World street prices of heroin, cocaine and, and cocaine fell more than 80% in the last quarter of the century, making it more available than it's ever been. And uh, the Australian Federal Police Chief Commissioner Tony Negus recently noted that while there has been some more drug arrests in, in 2013 than ever before, illicit drugs are still readily available. In other words, all the money we're throwing at it, it's just not giving us the result that was anticipated. So getting back to Michael Calder's article, he's one of these voices arguing that drugs should be treated as a health issue rather than a law enforcement issue uh, and that uh, prohibition has had its day. Now, one, one of these arguments that people use to support, support this is an economic one, which is, which is very powerful. You know, sometimes it's hard, to get back to the economics is when you think of all the health dollars that we're spending and the, and the law enforcement dollars. He's presented some facts. It's estimated that of every dollar spent on policing drugs returns $2 to the community, whereas every dollar spent on treatment of drug issues returns $7 to the community. So in other words, it's better investment of our, of our money, of our conjoined money, to spend it on medical treatment rather than enforcement. 
Coulter also quotes the 2012 um, findings of the Australian Institute of Criminology paper on the relationship between drugs, alcohol and incarceration, which of course incarceration costs us a fortune. Uh, a great many of the people who uh, end up in jail at great cost to the community do so because of acts committed while they're on drugs. And nearly, for example, nearly half the, the, the um, institute found that nearly half the prisoners who related their crimes to heroin use reported that they committed their crimes because they needed to buy heroin, simply because they needed to buy heroin. So um, it's, it's an interesting, interesting uh, article to read. It's, uh, he makes uh, a number of other interesting points. He, he also notes that in 2009, the direct cost of prohibition to Australia was $2.7 billion. That's what we're paying in law enforcement, interdiction and policing and incarceration. And, that, and he compares that to the fact that in, uh, from the year 2009 until 2013, we spent $61 billion, million dollars, only $61 million on an anti-tobacco education <coughs> strategy and we've dropped our smoking rates down from 33% down to about 17 or below. So he makes the point that education and put money put in education works whereas money in incarceration is, is money poorly spent. That's a bit of a double-edged argument though when it's applied to smoking because you know from time to time the suggestion of uh, making tobacco illegal arises in Australia because the health costs outweigh the, the, the tax revenue that that generates. On, on the other hand you know, the government spends millions of dollars in trying to encourage people not to smoke, and, and yet it's legal. Surely, uh, if tobacco were completely banned and made illegal, the vast majority of smokers wouldn't go underground and seek it out in illicit, illegal ways. If you run the same argument with uh, methamphetamine and you make methamphetamine legal... You'll create addicts, I suspect, because a proportion of people who would never have gone near methamphetamine and never have sought out an illegal drug dealer or taken a party drug may be tempted to go along to the local methamphetamine shop and try it. They like it, they go back, and sooner or later you've created an addict. And you've created a legal addict because the product's available. Uh, so I think there's a difference between making drugs legal on the one hand and decriminalising drug use on the other. I quite agree that there's no point locking up hapless drug users simply because of use. But it's a, a much bigger area than that, and if you make it open slather, you'll probably end up with a lot more legal addicts than you currently have illegal addicts. That's a really good argument, and, and this, this argument has not been answered or won or even had yet in our, in our community. It's the, these are the arguments we have to have, I think, the conversation we have to have. Interestingly, what you just described then was a very potent argument in the, in the um, 30s around decriminalising uh, alcohol use in America. They said we're going to have more people trying alcohol if you make it available. And I think the counter-argument to that was and maybe still is in the current question that, yes, you may get more people picking up alcohol and using it, and you may get more people addicted to alcohol, but you'll get fewer of them involved in crime and death and uh, legalised, uh, you know, criminalised activity, and so the cost to the community may still be borne, but it'll be borne in the health sector and not in the other, in the in the more costly side. That's that's kind of the counter argument. Now, we probably need to have those economic cut-and-thrust arguments, and, and I don't think it's been won at all, but it's a really interesting article, you know, starting off this conversation. Perhaps we should pick it up another time when we've got a bit more time to talk. Yeah, look, I, I don't think that there is an answer. We, we don't have the answer yet, but uh, I certainly think that we could discuss this some more. Okay, well, we'll bring it back another time. We're, we're, running, we're running over time, so it just remains for me to say thank you everybody for listening, thank you to SK and McZiff and to the wonderful Kent, and uh, stay tuned for those brilliant scientists there around the corner. See you next week. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.